Might as well start the record now. Um, yeah, and don't worry, Bill and Adrian. Um, you can. I, I suspect you're the kind of people who would be inclined to uh, whether you're being recorded or not. I don't think it's going to make a difference in terms of what you say. From my, uh, candor has always been your your. You do draw the line at slander and libel. Hello, listeners. Unusually, we're starting with a separately recorded intro for this episode. It's a a great conversation with Adrian Lehman and Bill Bordas. These two are towering figures in the built environment, but they're not people that everyone will have heard of, even if we've all probably felt their influence. In particular, they were new to Alex, Rachel and me. So Rachel suggested, having been so impressed by the pair, that we add a little context at the top for other people who might not know of them already. So. Rachel suggested, since we were so impressed, that we might add a little context at the top of the episode for people who might not know of them yet. By her own admission, Rachel said that Adrian and Bill were new to her, in spite of the fact that she's been looking into their specialist areas recently, very much aware of the work that they created, but not so much of themselves. So, in order to give them their well-due credit, she wrote up a little intro, which I'll read now because we didn't quite manage to meet up and record her speaking. Without further ado... If you look into building performance and post-occupancy evaluation at all, you'll soon come across research and tools that Adrian Lehman and Bill Bordas have had a hand in. Together, they've been involved in the creation of the BUS methodology, the soft landings framework, Probe, which later became Neighbours, then Neighbours UK, as well as the display energy certificates, often better known as DEC ratings. But they are particularly experts in making buildings truly usable through feedback and strategy. The pair's website, usablebuildings.co.uk, is a treasure trove of guidance, research, and case studies aimed at encouraging the people who make buildings think about the building's end users to get them to take more time to understand these users' experiences better and take their feedback seriously. So, now that's done, we'll crack on with the episode. Bill and Adrian, for my part, I'm very, very pleased to have you guys on the podcast and to be and to have been able to engage with you recently. Um, it's long overdue. The, the work, the powerful work that you've done over the years, both of you, to um, speak truth powers or to, or rather to try and speak to the, to the industry and to and question assumptions that people are making about buildings, about notionally good building is just it's a really important corrective. I know it's a message that hasn't always been gratefully received by the industry. There's no point doing any of this unless we unless we can have confidence that the buildings actually work so uh welcome to zero ambitions on this week's episode i'm delighted to say that we have we've been able to bring two of the really the kind of pioneering figures of of post-occupancy evaluation of buildings in the uk i mean their their work is i think revered much further further afield than that um bill bordas and adrian lehman of usable buildings since at least the 1990s and i think the 80s even uh, they've, they've been doing extraordinary work to understand how buildings work or don't as the case may be and i suppose at times probably made themselves not not as popular as they might be because they've been pointing out the reality of how buildings in some cases notionally sustainable buildings are actually performing um, and think and looking at it from the context of the user so i've uh, come across them 
recently, I've been working with them recently in the context of a, a new a new publication called the Building Performance Annual that we're working, working on associated with, with Passive House Plus. Um, and it was uh, it was actually Professor Fionn Stevenson who put me in the direction of Adrian and Bill because uh, when I started talking about doing post-occupancy work on buildings, Fionn basically said, unless you're talking to, to these guys, you're not going to have any credibility <laughs> to your claims if you're, if you're talking about going back and, and reviewing buildings and, and understanding how they actually perform. So I found it, I have to say, a fascinating process and I'm just thrilled to, to have Adrian and Bill on. So thank you guys. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, and uh, really looking forward to, you know, uh, yeah, sucking more of the of, of the, the amazing experience that you've, that you've got uh, out for the benefit of our listeners. Well, thank you, uh, Jeff. Shall I, I'll go first, Bill. Um, it won't. I won't be. It won't be long. There's only two. I think there's only two things that, that people need to know about us. And one is that between us, we cover about eight academic disciplines and ignore them all. That that. I mean, it's, our work is very interdisciplinary from very different perspectives. And the second thing is that we talk to each other. We actually talk to each other across the disciplines and understand each other. And this is a really rare combo. On the one hand, you have the social science user aspects that I bring to the party, perhaps a little bit of geography thrown in, spatial analysis, a little bit of linguistics, philosophy as well. And and Bill can tell you what he brings to the party. But the important thing is that we talk to each other regularly. And it's on sessions like this that we have our best ideas because we kind of busk around a subject and um, and chat away and you never know what's going to emerge and, and you know emergence is one of the most important things about buildings and design anyway We're, now I call myself a specialist in the nearly obvious because most of the stuff from a user perspective is nearly obvious and a lot of it gets missed out completely from the design and development process so my 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 perspective is 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 definitely starting with the users in social science and then working towards reality. And Bill comes from a, a different uh, perspective, so I'll let him tell you what that is. Right. Well, I come from a physical science perspective. Um, I got a PhD in physical chemistry and then was on university staff, but I was always interested in buildings. And I was a bit upset by the problems with new buildings that emerged in Cambridge, where I was in the 60s and early 70s. So I joined a firm of architects to see if I could do something about it 50 years ago, horribly now. And I worked there. They were were multidisciplinary architects, engineers, um, quantity surveyors, interior designers, planners, you name it. So 14 years there, I got a sort of wide understanding of um, the process of briefing and design and construction and management. Um, But after five years in the firm, learning the job of various ways, I got put in charge of building services and energy. So I did five years of that and then reached my level of incompetence because I'm not a good manager and I had 30 people to manage. And so I then set up a building science and energy group and we very much did sort of strategy monitoring and troubleshooting. And then 35 years ago, I went self-employed. So essentially, I've been doing that sort of thing ever since um, as research, as consultancy uh, for government. But it particularly 
works back from how buildings are working on the ground to what one might do to change the system to get them done better. So that's probably me for the moment. And then we might come to a step where Adrian and I met in the late 80s. Well, the way I remember it is that uh, we, we met through giving presentations. And I can I can recall you sitting in the front row of one of my presentations. And I thought, oh, my God, not him again. Because... Um, you 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 normally came up with a kind of killer question that uh, the speaker always stumbles over, and there was a seminar at which I'd said something which I thought was pretty radical, and all the architects there were umming and ahhing about it. And Bill suddenly was at, who was at that session jumped up from the other the end of the room saying, "I agree with you completely," and I thought that must be a breakthrough for me if Bill agrees with me, and it really for me picked up from there, and this. Was was in the 1980s um, when I was running a company called Building Use Studies that specialised in usability, building use. And um, it was a small company of about seven people altogether. And we started work on sick building syndrome and did the early British analysis on that subject. And uh, Building Use Studies then was it's still alive, but it's moribund at the moment because of COVID. Um, we went into not only sick building work, but into the probe team when Bill brought us onto the probe team. And we had a questionnaire for the sick building study that was 16 pages long and it had been produced by basically a camel a camel committee of six and for the probe studies bill and i sat down and stripped that questionnaire back down to two pages so that we could capture from building occupants believable honest information about how buildings performed and then that was a real eye-opener because two-thirds of the buildings by the metrics we were using were underperforming or performing very badly and it was also that the users were kind of giving us dog whistles about how much they hated things hated open plan offices hated themselves hating the the their management and especially hated the designers of new buildings that they were obliged to be in and um, that 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 then led to us becoming far more public uh, with our work and eventually setting up usable buildings which was the website where we intended to put these on Honest uh, results into the public domain, but that was what in in the late nineties. And since and during that period, we've had pushback, constant pushback from the construction construction industry and from the design professions because they did, basically did not want to hear the messages that we were putting across. And it was through people like uh, Don Norman who wrote the book, um, a, a profound book called "The Design of Everyday Things" or "The Psychology of Everyday." Things. Things. And I think they took, they took the word psychology out of the title, which is always a good thing to do when you're doing this kind of work. And uh, the design of everyday things was very much on message as far as we were concerned. And most of our work was basically doing papers and presentations in the grey areas of, of, of uh, the, the, the publication world. We, we held on to all our copyrights so we could put all our stuff into our website. And I put into the chat room the... the, um, the 
the usable buildings website uh, link so that you can just uh, pick up on that if you want to. But you'll find in our back our back catalogue in that website, which we which we run now um, and continue to run. We set it up in 1998, and it's got about 500. Um, uh, three click is our user mantra. Three clicks to believable content. Um, no no paywalls uh, and no problems with copyright because we've hung on to our copyrights over the years to, to enable us to do this. And we got some feedback from an Australian user who, who said something like, your, your website content is fantastic, but your landing page is rubbish. And our landing page will encourage you to go and look at the landing page because that landing page has got everything on it that, that can take you rapidly straight to decent material, which is, of course, what users want and what users need. You know, you go to the point of you bring the point of need as close to the user as possible and that applies to websites as much as it applies to buildings and so our website's a kind of example of how we think it should work on the web but it's also quite unlike most other websites we're a big fan of your website we've we've been talking about it uh with various people that we've spoken to this week and uh it has come in for a bit of criticism for its a less sophisticated design in contemporary terms but I mean, you're not you're not selling trainers, are you? You're not selling clothes. That's precisely the point. We don't. If we put across a, a, um, a glossy corporate image or an image that's acceptable to the to the wider um, web designer world, we wouldn't be doing the job right. We, our our users are normal human beings who are not particularly bothered about how it looks, but how can they get the material they're after, and can they get useful information? And another example of uh, a website that comes out of our stable um, where Bill and I did a lot of the background work and the conceptual work was the responsible retrofit green wheel. Now that, if, if, you, if you, you website designers and usability experts go and look at the green wheel and, and tell us whether that is a good way of presenting this kind of information, because you, you need to capture, with buildings, you need to capture the full systemic glory of the complexity of a building, how things interact, the elements interact with each other, how risky those elements can be if you intervene. But then you need to drill down probably four or five Five layers to to the detail of the, either the research that can can tell you about that risk or those solutions. Um, or um, take you down to the level that you're comfortable with in understanding these problems. And it's no good being academic about it. You know, you need you need to be uh, you need to either appeal with um, you know traffic lights, red, amber, green. Beware of this. Don't go there. Uh, um, look at the responsible retro. I'll put the um, I'll put the URL into the uh, um, chat while Bill's talking. But look at that as another example from our stable and. Uh, it's different, but these are t- uh, and they're different ways of presenting information. The last thing you want is gratuitous, glossy rubbish on on a website. Yeah, quite. I mean, just for the sake of clarity, the website is www.usablebuildings.co.uk. Uh, yeah. Exactly as you think it might be, just for the listeners. But yeah, it's a fabulous site. I mean, you could be critiqued for your search functionality, but I like that you mitigate some of your your. You have a little bit of self criticism in there, uh, yeah. and man, people are reading the reports. They're not just looking for search terms to to glean a little bit of information. So you're you're catering to your audience. Like I, I totally admire it. It's quite like I don't know if anyone remembers Eric Schmidt of Google, his website.
website. I think it only relatively recently updated, but it looked like it could have been designed in 1995, at least until the, the mid-2010s. But yeah, yeah, uh, I'm, well, I'm a, a fan. I noticed Bill's put the, the responsible retrofit green wheel. But don't please play with it. Well, play with it after we've finished talking rather than now, because it's it's there to be played with. Yeah, I, I already had a little bit of a play with that um, before this call, and it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And just the way that the interactions between different types of measures that you can make in retrofit are so clearly laid out, um, I think that that might be a bit of a spend a few hours um, delving into. And I think as well, I mean, I agree with Dan, the Usable Buildings website is an absolute treasure trove. I was searching in there and found a paper written in 1999 about mixed mode ventilation. And we're having conversations on projects right now about how to do this. And sometimes it does feel like we're just rehashing the same issue and trying to reinvent the wheel time and time again, when this has been something that has been properly studied already. And we just need to read and understand the research. Um, Well, like I I pulled out for the show notes today. So we had a bit of a briefing, like your flying blind paper, which was great. But like the recommendations in there, I mean, just to pull out the quote I gave everyone, in short, we must stop flying blind and make energy performance clearly visible and actionable by all parties concerned. I mean, that's what we're bleating on about week in, week out, every other day at the very least. The sad thing about flying blind, which is now 21 years old, I think, is it was a curtain raiser for our display energy certificate system, which we had running properly in 2003. And we wrote a paper in about 2015 showing how this had been completely buggered up by vested interests and the government. And this is the story of our lives. I mean, the the other story of our lives is we found it impossible to work in universities. Really? Yeah. Uh for what reason? Essentially, real-world research doesn't tick the boxes. They, they want it narrow and deep, and we're broad and flat, but can drill down when we need to. And this is a really important thing. I mean, Adrian talked about the simplification of the BUS 16-page survey for Probe. And what we found again and again, both for design and for often for analysis, is that you want to make it simple and do it better. Now, the interesting thing is Probe was based on, because I'd slimmed down energy survey techniques in the 1980s. Um, One of the jobs I did was monitoring the monitoring of energy demonstration projects for government. And with a a bag of handheld instruments, I could drive a coach and horses through two years monitoring on nearly every building I visited in half a day. Sometimes to the extent that the people who'd monitored it said, Bill, can you give us the numbers to put in our report? <laughs> because essentially they used only the eyes, only the monitoring equipment they'd put in the building. They had not gone round using their own senses amplified by handheld equipment. So I found heat meters on the wrong pipe. I found plant which didn't accord with its description. I found buildings that were feeding energy out into other buildings which they hadn't spotted. And essentially in science, you're taught the art of successive approximation. And experimentation is often about that. You know, you study something, you come to hypothesis, and then you throw things at it. So 
we have been very good at developing simple techniques by having a sophisticated understanding and then pulling it back to what really matters. Most people overcomplicate things. In fact, there was a wonderful paper by UCL about five years ago, which said that these techniques we used in probe in the 90s, you know, really trivial. And what we're doing is adding more. But in fact, 25 years ago, we'd taken all that away in order to get something which was sensible and practical and gave you enough to be dealing with and allowed you to drill down into the things that really mattered rather than drilling a whole lot of holes where you didn't need them and forgetting about the ones where you did. Now, unfortunately, this sort of thinking doesn't suit engineers who tend to like rules and doesn't suit government who tend to like rules. And this is a real problem. The other problem, which is a particular one for non-scientists, is that people think it's good if it has high high precision and lots of data. But often a case study could tell you something which big data can't, because the case study, you can capture the context and not just the outcomes, where the big data just captures the outcomes. And since buildings are such terribly messy and noisy systems anyway, with all the people and technologies and all the rest going in on them, you really have to understand not just the what, the outcome, but the why and the where and the who and the when. And this is often what's missed when you collect statistics on building. Oh, 100%. It's a great yeah. example, Bill, uh, that brings to mind for me. Um, we featured a social housing project um, in uh, Dunleary, where I'm from, in Dublin, in southeast Dublin. It was a small enough scheme, nicely done, big pad with uh, zinc roofs and a mimic the, the factories around them. And one of the 12 units or so, um, the, the residents were complaining. It wasn't a passive house scheme. It was a nearly zero energy building standard. Uh, scheme to the Ireland Irish uh, new building regulation standard scheme and uh, one of the, the households was complaining about their energy bills being much higher uh, than predicted to the councillors so one of the architects from the council and one of the suppliers involved went went down to the development to look at, see if they could find about you know doorstep the the occupants ring them and, and see if they could work out what was going on and sure enough they, they spotted the house because there was one house that had a, a massive window open all the time this is in the middle of winter now of course you should have the option to do that and they rang the doorbell and and the, the, the couple answered and uh, and asked is that is that window open all the time and they said no and then the teenage daughter turned her head around the corner and said yeah it is because there's no phone signal the zinc roof <laughs> <laughs> themes but stopping the phone signal from working at all and these are just you know uh, issues that hadn't been considered I suppose perhaps uh, adequately at the design stage that would completely sabotage the successful operation of your building you know we had a wonderful one like that on when we were looking at building schools for the future in the noughties and essentially this ventilation system was designed for classrooms to have their doors shut but if a teacher was in a classroom with the door shut it meant they couldn't keep order so the teachers always talk with the doors open, which messed up the ventilation system. But coming to another one in schools, and this is another thing for the power of the case study, a lot of work was done on lighting in schools in the 60s and 70s. We started discovering, I think it was um, in about in, in the, yeah, it was in the sort of late 90s, that that daylight strategy wasn't working anymore 
because you had interactive whiteboards. So essentially, you know, you wanted <laughs> to keep the light off the blackboard rather than have it on it and various other things. And yet all the UK's building of schools for the future were designed very much on daylight for environments without screens. Yeah. And a single case study, you know, we said this is a problem. You know, we sort of, we, we you see the canaries in the coal mine by doing these POEs and saying, ah, you've got a problem here. Or sometimes you've got an opportunity. Another one in lighting is about 2000. We found the occupant responses on office lighting were starting to improve. And we wondered what was going on. And the reason was absolutely nothing to do with the lighting and everything to do with flat screens, because flat screens didn't catch reflections in the same way as goldfish bowl screens did. And also flat screens allowed you to have rectilinear furniture, whereas deep screens tended to be put into, you know, cruciform or hexagonal clusters or triangular ones or things like that. So you almost invariably got poor relationships between where the screens were, where the windows and light fittings were. And well, just look at Grenfell Town. Ah, you know, and all the suppressed feedback there, you know, and now, now we have lots of flammable buildings in the UK. So, I mean, case studies can be really powerful, but we don't have mechanisms for capturing it. Well, it seems that there's uh, users are obscured from the whole process all the time. No, so I just wanted to, to ask because you, as you say, that creating, giving that context, and we call it creating stories. Really, this that's what people remember. But can you do you think that you can really anticipate the, those changes in buildings? Because some of the examples you gave are are really hard to predict. Like we we didn't think we had we would have flat screen TVs. So I don't know how long ago now, but we just didn't think about it. I, I quite clearly remember having those slightly different types of of furniture that have that impact but how how can we anticipate what can we do to to take into account the changes in the uses of buildings in a, in a way that uh, uh, makes the makes us avoid these things so it's a, it's a long-term problem buildings are here uh, to stay may i answer that because in uh, in the 1990s bill and i were asked to do a predictive study by national power and electricity utility about what was going to happen in the year i think it was 2000 and we wrote that up and we did our predictions you know and we have those predictions now and i think they're on the website there's certainly on the website we wrote a couple of other papers that went with it, which was to do with what is now unfortunately called densification, which is a horrendous term, and I wouldn't want to use it. But uh, it was all about the geographical level of changes that were happening in settlements, the, the, the nature of the move from spatial criteria to temporal criteria. And we called it the age of paradox, because there are a whole set of things contradicting each other, apparently, but which in fact were going together. And especially with office bills, who had um, the the trend to uh, work from home was clearly obvious in 1995. And we wrote that up and it's on the website. And again, there are our predictions about how things were going to turn out. At a given, okay, it was an indeterminate time in the future. We didn't start actually saying it's going to happen on the 1st of April 2022. And we didn't say it was going to be triggered by a pandemic, but we did say it was going to be triggered by something which was big and uh, made people pay attention. Now, yes, it is possible to predict. And one of the great things about post-occupancy evaluation is the users tell you. The users are the canaries in the coal mine that tell you what's going to happen next. I'm going to classic that, that sticks in my mind. Again, it's from schools. Schools are fascinating because 
we, we did a lot of briefing work in schools and or tried to, but we never really picked up much work that way. And the most important thing, if you asked, and I, I don't want to be, I don't want to upset our, our architect, uh, Rachel, but I probably <laughs> will by what I'm going to say now, is that if you ask a, a, a gaggle of architects, what are the most important things in schools are, you'd get, I mean, the geese would give you a completely different set of answers about what the basics are. And if you ask if you ask the users what's the most important thing, and you can't, obviously, because they're all five years old, it's the, the most obvious thing about a school is that the users need to hear the teacher. That is number one. And secondly, number two, the users need to see what the teacher's doing. Okay, so it's pretty basic stuff and if you start mucking around with that like giving them triangular buildings and taking the doors off classrooms and um and then start building the kind of stuff that was built in the uk over the blairite period of um, of school buildings uh, you know too much air conditioning and so on which of course they're now taking out because of covid and in scotland r- ridiculously sawing the bottom off doors in order to improve ventilation in classrooms now that's <laughs> a now we didn't I, whether that's actually happened or not i don't know but nicholas surgeon certainly was talking about it now i mean you know, it, it, it's 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 the architecture of the absurd, and it is completely clear in a building brief from a user's point of view what needs to be done. And one of the things we got from our Australian studies was that they simply didn't want to be there. We, we did a uh, we uh, I did a study of um, Melbourne's Council House Two, which is supposed to be the the most wonderful green building ever constructed. This is done about fifteen years ago. And um, the the uh, there were many features of that building that were extremely innovative, like balconies, so that people could go out onto the balcony with their mobile phones, not to disturb people. But it was put completely obvious to me from that building, that case study, that the occupants just didn't want to be there. They wanted to be somewhere else. And in Australia, you can actually get out of buildings much more easily than you can in, say, UK and Ireland, where they're often on dire locations like um uh, how uh, uh, industrial estates and out of town loca- green buildings in out of town locations brilliant so everybody has to drive there you know that sort of paradox sorry i'm i'm now lost completely lost the thread of the question but um i i'm on the verge of starting to rant so i think i'll just stop i hope i've answered that question it's how you picked things up but if we can go back to the earlier question which was how do you make sure that this sort of thing is taken account by designers when there's such a long time lag between designing and the thing getting in use. We feel the whole culture has to be totally reversed. So instead of diverging from good intentions, you you converge onto good outcomes. So that means you've got an outcome-driven rather than input-driven process. And We developed a number of techniques for doing that. So it was partly the energy assessment and reporting method, which you could use the same method for doing an energy survey in a building as you could for summarizing your design predictions. So you had total transparency between them. It was partly on process called soft landings, which initially was looked at providing aftercare 
um, in a building in the first year or perhaps more after occupancy. But then we soon learned through the case studies that it was no good having a, a soft landing unless you'd had a, a good flight plan and effective takeoff, maintained things in level flight during the contract, you know, brought it down and had the soft landing. So we, we ended up with a five-stage process, which started with very much getting your design in client and design intent in line at the first stage and being very much related to identifying the outcomes you wanted, but not necessarily quantitatively. You could identify them qualitatively and then you could bring the numbers into things you could measure, but don't pretend you could bring the numbers into the things you couldn't measure. Or if you weren't quite sure, then use a transparency technique so you could identify where the uncertainties were. Now, also to lay on top of the soft landings process, um, about 10 years ago, we started talking about new professionalism and saying, well, actually, you know, if somebody calls themselves a professional, and particularly architects in the UK, which is a protected name, then you have a duty to the public interest as well as to your own client and your own firm and yourself, etc. So this wider view, and particularly in view now of the institutions saying, thou shalt um, practice sustainable construction, means that if you don't understand the consequences of your actions, you can hardly call yourself a professional and you ought to be struck off. So potentially, I mean, the institutions are beginning to wake up to, for, to that, but it's all terribly weak because their clients and the government won't let them be any stronger. The government believes in the invisible hand of the market. And the problem is, going back to an early earlier question that was raised, is the distancing of the occupier and user from the supply side. I mean, that's inevitable because things take a long time and with luck, buildings last a long time after the first occupiers. So essentially, a good built environment is a public interest issue and governments can be custodians of that. Professionals can be custodians of that up to a point. Business can't because that's not business. what not business does. One of the issues that I find myself just bleating on about endlessly is that, well, in this particular context, building performance nowadays is viewed in terms of asset value, not suitability for the occupants or the users. And I think that's the bit which appears to permeate all things. So we, you reference Grenfell. We look at something like Carillion and Greensill. You know, they weren't even necessarily finishing the contracts, but the contract was sold and resold to, yeah. to generate profit. Like it's all of this nonsense underpinning the the industry and the government's appraisal, like the government's appraisal of local and national governments of, of public infrastructure. Look at the schools. You know, the kids don't want to be there. And the, well, the patch of land they can occupy, which we call the school, gets smaller and smaller as the fields are sold off or smaller and smaller in terms of the public ownership as it's handed over to academy, private academy groups and the like. And its usability diminishes. It's much more serious than that now in, in the UK. I'm, I'm now involved with user groups on national parks. 
And one of the things that's been happening is the privatization, as it were, of the national parks. And one of the most shocking things of recently is the is the hijacking of what they're calling natural capitalism. In other words, they're they're talking about uh, monetizing nature. Now, and this is kind of shocking to me in that the whole process is geared back to being the accountancy of national statistics. So the whole language of, say, the rewilding process or whatever they're interested in, diversity, has to be tracked back to enable them to talk about this stuff in terms of national accounting and national statistics. And there's only one methodology for doing that, which is discounted cash flow. However they dress it up, you know, value divided by cost in in the context of time is the language of the modern world in Britain. And it also enables the Treasury to completely dominate the process, which makes the whole thing very ideological. And in fact, um, value divided by cost over time, discounted in a cash flow, means that value disappears after about 30 years in normal circumstances. And of course, in national parks and in the environment, that's exactly the opposite of what we hope is going to happen. Exactly the opposite. You know, value should be improving and getting better all the time. Now, that... So, you know, both in the natural world and in the world of the artificial, the sciences of the artificial, which which we're involved with, um, I think that was Herbert Simon's term, the sciences of the artificial, and that's very much what we're doing. Um, exactly the opposite of what needs to be done in in our in Bill and our terms is happening now, and there's nothing we've been able to do in our 40 years in in this area that's going to stop it because it's ideological. And it, um, and that means that we are very, very frustrated people because, you know, in trying to take the message of reality and put the message of reality out there, we've, we're com- constantly confounded by not just the ideology of politics, but the ideology of statistics and big data, which, of course, is another insidious incursion into this area. You know, you don't you don't study buildings with big data, as Bill's been saying, you study them through case studies backed up by believable data that comes from the users. It's very, very interesting stuff, Adrian. Um, and I suppose probably one of the most flagrant examples of, of this accountancy approach you're talking about is is in net, net zero carbon, I suppose, would be a, a good example of that, the offsetting and ah. you know, this idea that you can you can destroy things provided, uh, you know, uh, somebody talked about the idea of, uh, it was, uh, it was doing the rounds on social media, of a, of a zero a net, net zero murder, right, where you um, you offset one murder against uh, against uh, you know uh, I don't know impregnating someone you know. Yeah, that sounds legit. <laughs> you, you just have another baby like Boris Johnson, don't you? <laughs> Who knows how many of them he has? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so there are bodies buried yeah. by the Johnson family. <laughs> but I think that the idea of monetizing things, like the studies to show that when you monetize something, sometimes it makes people actually value it less because you then think, oh, well, it's monetized and therefore it's something that I can take from. Um, and it almost you see it in terms of the market rather than in terms of the actual value that it 
it has on your yeah. on your lives. And I think that that's, you know, culturally it, a huge problem that we need to contend with. But it is. I, I, think I, that I just respond to that immediately mm. because one of the papers that actually has been read over the years is something we did called Productivity in Buildings, the Killer Variable. Now, what we discovered was that if you put the word killer into the title, title of anything, it will be read. Now, um, which is a little hint for you all. Yeah, good but to know. The, the, um, the, the thing about this is that that when we study buildings, we ask people in our questionnaires only for the things that they know the answers to. This is why exit polls from from uh, elections actually give you the correct answer, usually, rather than opinion polls that don't. Because, you know, people are giving the correct answer in an exit poll, but not necessarily in an opinion poll. Now, in the, our questionnaire, there is only one question that we cannot, where, where people don't know, the, don't know the answer. And that is the question that every manager in any organisation wants the answer to, which is, has your productivity increased or decreased as a result of being in the building? Now, and again, our Australian users will, will give us the, uh, the direction we need when people answer that question in Australia by saying, by yes, our productivity by asking bloody stupid questions like this one, and we know it's a bloody stupid question because you know, you know, it's all. It's, it, but that is the very first question that a manager will look at the data for. It is the one that you can't believe. You know, it, it gives you a, a metric percentage increase or percentage decrease of productivity as a result of being in the building. Now, we, you can't, there's no better way of doing it. It's totally subjective, basically, and you can't define the question properly. But and when you ask it, you find that two thirds of the buildings have a negative answer. Even the newest and the, the you know, the ones that won, won all the design awards, they're still getting negative um, answers. And as soon as you come along with negative answers and things that make people look stupid, then you become a target for snipers. And and basically, Bill and I go into presentations with bulletproof vests on because we know that we're going to be shot at because people do not want to hear any kind of negative result. You know, everything is a glossy, award-winning wonder, you know. But there's a pantomime in York. Sorry, this is a digression, but I must tell you this. There's a pantomime in York, Christmas pantomime, and I'm sitting there with the wife. And suddenly, the pantomime dame comes down off the stage and says... The, the winner of the golden wagon wheel, because <laughs> they have a, a wagon. Do you know what a wagon wheel is? It's a it's a big biscuit, we're, we're diminishing by the year with inflation, a chocolate-covered biscuit. And this pantomime thing comes down the aisle where we're sitting, and my wife had, had, has won this year's golden wagon wheel. It's a bit like getting an, an OBE for um, for users. And I'm, I've died up, dived under the seat with embarrassment at that, at that moment. Now, you know... The, if your building doesn't win the golden wagon wheel or the sterling prize or whatever, then there's something wrong with it. But in our our way, if it has won the golden wagon wheel, then that's the reason why you should be very, very aware of what's going on in that building. Because the criteria are completely different. You know, the criteria are not about delivering uh, a, a healthy uh, spatial experience for the occupants. The criteria are about making managers and corporate people look clever and, and 
designers look clever. So one of the things that we never go near is competitions and, and things like that. Which is all Adrian, I just think that it's very for cutting you off there, but it's on design there and, and, and what, what people consider. One of the things that constantly frustrates me uh, when I hear Arca talk about design uh, is th- their conception of the term and what it encapsulates and what it doesn't encapsulate. And so often, uh, you know, like design, there'll be sort of, yes, it's a very energy efficient building um, or a healthy, you know, it's got good air quality, whatever it might be, but what about the design? You know, and the design is conceived of in the kind of the traditional conception that are have, I suppose, of design uh, in aesthetic terms and so on. Um, uh, and I, I, and we surely, you know, in 2022, we we have we have to have a new conception of design that that that, that actually thinks about the usability of space and how successful it is for its occupant. It's, it's, it's absurd that you could have any different definition that doesn't doesn't take into account those, those kinds I, of considerations. Well, I guess just to add to that as well, I think that we've seen this absolute narrowing of the architect's role over time until you know it just becomes this this thing that's about what does the facade look like and what's the finish of the of the cause that you're putting in and and i think there was a, something that you said at the talk that you did at ucl which is that you know architects are really interested in design but design is not the real world so how do we actually engage them into thinking about how these things sit in the real world and to me there seems like there's a few blockers within there um one of which is potentially the, the short term sort of thinking that we're all sort of living within and the fact that, you know, that we don't really talk about the stewardship of buildings and the fact that maybe a designer should be involved over a building's whole life rather than just until practical completion. And I think a lot of the problems that we face around the fact that, you know, we just want the good result and we don't want to hear anything bad is because to be really honest, I think it's because no one's paying us often to do this soft landings or this post-occupancy evaluation. So the only reason that practices want to do it is for marketing. And otherwise, why would you, why would you go, th- why would you go through this? So I, I wonder if there's a, you know, there's a solution. Is it about sort of top down? Is it about regulation? Is it about somehow changing the culture so that the people that own buildings have a more sort of long term view? Is it about the training of architects and designers? I don't know. I mean, that's a view of professionalism with which we think is is so uh, unfortunate. When I mean, if you're ill in hospital and you awake from a, 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 a you wake up from the, the operation and you suddenly find there are twelve people with clipboards round the bed, uh, one of whom is you know. Very very bossy and the one the one in charge but what they're doing is monitoring what's just happened and you've got stuff coming out of your ears and your nose and so on monitoring everything now if the medical profession just regards that, they have clinical units for the built environment, or they used to, which were all about immediately monitoring and feedback the experience uh, from a, obviously from a medical point of view and the user's point of view in the medical situation is often disregarded, by the way. But they're there monitoring the situation and it's a normal part of many professions. But it's not a normal part. You get passive aggressive pushback whenever you give talk to architectural audiences who say of course we believe in feedback of course we monitor and they don't and Bill will tell you about you know our experiences of giving RIBA talks uh, about eight or nine years ago when when we used to do little um, surveys of how many architects had gone back into the buildings that they designed and got some monitored feedback and Bill will tell you now hopefully how many did. Well this was a very interesting one because it 
varied massively by read. So in London, I asked two questions, you know, do you routinely go into your buildings to find out how they're working? And the second question was, have you ever? Well, I had 60 people in Portland Place and not a single hand went up. I had 30 people in Exeter and about half the hands went up. I had, we, we had, Adrian, did we, how many people do we have in Liverpool and Manchester? About, 50, about 5 to 10 percent, I think. It was a you know, it's interesting, in Manchester, very few hands went up and in Liverpool, quite a lot more hands went up. And by talking to people, I realised what the issue was. Um, the people in Portland Place tended to be in large practices and they were cogs in a wheel. So they were not, they did not have an end-to-end view of the building they were working on. You know, they were either doing the planning or doing the detailing or doing the envelopes or maybe doing a bit of site inspection or something, but they didn't have the end-to-end overview. Whereas in Exeter in particular, they were smaller practices or even in East London, we, we did one in um, Whitechapel and even that got about, you know, 15% or so of the audience. But the smaller the practice, the more likely they were to be close to their buildings. And, and this is a big problem because essentially the way the market is going, the medium-sized practices are getting squeezed out. And particularly with sort of insurance premiums and things like that after Grenfell, you know, a lot of the small and medium ones can't afford to exist. And the trouble is that the, the big ones are part of the problem because, you know, what they want is a system. You know, as, as one partner in a firm of engineers said to me, um, you know, regretfully, well, Bill, you must understand that our engineers design to the rules. They don't design for good outcomes. So if it's not oh, in yeah. the rules, it doesn't happen. But the problem is, if you're in a system where you need to innovate, which is evolving, and anyway, nearly every building's innovative in some way or other, because the site and the context varies, then you need the follow through and feedback, because otherwise, you can't possibly get things right first time, because you don't know what right is. But the danger is, that it gets brought back that right equals following the rule. That is certainly not what we need to do to urgently evolve to a more sustainable built environment. So we've got these enormous, as Adrian's been saying, you know, we've got these enormous cultural mismatches um, increased in the UK by the Treasury also, a quote I use quite often, saying, sparing no expense to get something on the cheap. <laughs> so yeah. we, we never put the right amount of effort in at the right time. You know, if you, if you actually put the right effort in at the right time. So, I mean, I was involved in some Thing very recently. Well, I've been involved with several things with our industry department that looks after buildings and energy now. And a lot of things don't work because there's a cultural problem. And sometimes have bright young civil servants who hear, but then they come back and saying, sorry, this is not acceptable for the minister. The minister wants market solution. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> just market solutions won't deliver. It's culture change that's going to deliver. And I mean, I, I've got completely frustrated frustrated and think you can only do this bottom up. You know, it's got to be small glale, it's got to be local, and then it could be network. And, you know, the pacifist movement is, is an interesting example of this, you know, that it it has, you know, there are certain pacifist zealots who are sticklers for good level of quality control, which you have to do to meet the standard. And 
that has been spreading a bit like a virus. I mean, 10 years ago, there were hardly any any of these things in the UK. Um, I think there are probably even fewer in Ireland. Uh, you know, now it's almost got to a stage where people are saying, well, governments, why don't you just legislate for this? I mean, I don't think that would be a terrible thing, good, terribly good thing to do. But it's interesting. It is building up a bit of a head of steam that way. And, you know, in some ways, the, the professionals rather than the market have been taking over because this is generally not being driven by contractors. It's being driven by designers. It, it is an interesting point, And we've we've looked at that ourselves in the, in the Irish context when you have um, even the, the growing pains you have with the standard when uh, it moves outside of the realm of the enthusiast, you know, um, uh, uh, and how you how you try and accommodate uh, an industry with with the cultural problems that you try um, and, uh, and with this kind of, you know, uh, bad, bad kind of uh, value engineering is a euphemism for cutting all of the goodness out of everything, you know, approach rather than proper value engineering. Um, yeah, I, 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 look, it, it, I don't know where, we, where we'll come to with, it, with that. There are some very uh, thought-provoking insights you've provided today. We've gone on uh, longer than we normally would because of that, I suppose. Um, so I think we probably should try to wrap things up uh, uh, if, uh, unless anybody has any fin- kind of final questions. Um, uh, and you're muted. Okay. And can I... Uh, the, yeah, the go kind of things that we get asked um, are, what's your favourite building? And can you put your results on a T-shirt, basically? <laughs> and so we're re- I'm ready with answers to those you know, stupid questions, basically. So my favourite building is um, Flamborough Head Lighthouse because it saves lives, but you never know how many it saves. So you can't really quantify it at all. But you've got to have lighthouses, and they're brilliant. The engineering is wonderful. They're robust. They're sustainable. They're incredible. You can convert them, eat, uh, and so on. Now, you know, that to me, my, if, you're, if, you're, if your understanding of buildings is about outcomes and results, those those are the buildings that really should feature vernacular farms things like that have survived hundreds of years traditional building and the other thing is you know put your results on a t-shirt now um i and we've got answers to that and the the answer is beware of unmanageable complexity that will go on a t-shirt that is a a major conclusion from you know 30 to 40 years of our work and there are you know one or, one or two other conclusions that we've got and i put it into the probe nine graphic that's on the chat there um, gives you s- some other one-liners which are all about you know conclusions really things that we've learned and many of the presentations that we've done on which are on the website there are four there are probably a hundred or so on the website many of those have got you know the, the kind of collective wisdom that we've tried to pick up but from a user because this is about users primarily from the user's point of view the most important thing is that users understand design intent they need to understand what the designer's trying to do. And if they do understand it, then they tend to be more tolerant of what they've done, which is why when you study a, a, an architectural office, you tend to get better results in a crap building than you would with normal people because they understand the design intent, the occupants, and they know that they've had a good go at getting it right, but have probably got it wrong. You know, th- there's a, that level of tolerance that goes into users' understanding of building. And those are the kinds of conclusions that need to be built into the design process and get over the the, con- 
the architectural control freakery that you can get with passive house. You know, you can get um, designers in their own passive house in this kind of really freaky environment, which isn't messy enough for normal life. Well, it's, in- it's interesting you say that. And I'm uh, going through the results from the, the questionnaires uh, on the projects, not all of which are passive houses, but mostly passive houses for our annual that you kindly worked on with. with um, and it's going to be just fascinating trying to, trying to understand these findings and to to, uh, to, con- to contextualize them, as you say, to, to look at them in the context of, of what the designer was intending with the building and what was going on in the way that people were living their lives in these buildings, you know. Um, so, but yeah, it's it's amazing insights, and I just think it's a real eye-opener for me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's what uh, Alex alluded to and what you guys said earlier. Like, it's the what is of some significance. It's the why. That's the really interesting part. And the why is where you get the story. And the stories, to your point, uh, are how you educate people. Because people don't really like rules and facts and numbers. They're hard to remember. But you tell people stories. Man, they get it. And it, it sticks with them. You tell the right story. Well, I suppose in, in summary then, or in conclusion, we've talked a lot about how things haven't changed. Like you guys have been beating the same drum with the same rhythm broadly for, I don't know, decades. But, I mean, do you see people doing good work? Like, we can see what a lot of the problems are, but who do you see picking up your mantle? Uh, like is anyone picking up your mantle? Or do you guys still feel uh, slightly isolated trying to get people to hear you? Like, we'll, we'll shout about you everywhere we can. Jeff does. Well, we don't. Flamborough Head Lighthouse. We don't know how many lives we save. <laughs> I mean, do you do you see anyone doing comparable work to yours? Someone that you 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 can point to that uh, people to watch for the future. I mean, the issue is really that some universities have been picking up on this, but they tend to overcomplicate it um, because of reasons I've discussed. Because that's what gets research funding. But I do think. There are opportunities for network solutions where practitioners get together more closely with academics to develop things and to help close the feedback loop. So the practitioner is still restricted by their clock and budget, but they do have people who are shadowing what's going on, can reflect on it and can produce feedback which is useful for the next project. And one can see this nastily going on, and you know, one can see certain pr- practitioners, I'm not going to name names, who are actually operating in this manner, particularly on projects which are a bit tricky, like major interventions to um, listed historic buildings and things like that, where they really want to move it. I mean, it's sustainable anyway, because it's lasted hundreds of years. But they want to move it into something which is also, you know, functional, <laughs> economic, carbon, things like that. You know, and, 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 you know, if you have the right client, you can get, I mean, I, I, I worked on one, you know, 10 years ago now, which took five years to do and now had five years monitoring and that sort of thing. And fortunately, most of the results are reasonably good, you know, but you, you, you need a deep pocketed client to pay for things like that. Government ought to be sponsoring some of this because, again, it's more magic dust than money because quite a lot of academic work that's done can be fairly unusable by practitioners. So to make that more usable, I mean, where, where we've we've had things in the UK called knowledge transfer partnerships, where people are sponsored by some industrial money to do a PhD or an NGD or something. And some of these those have got absolutely fantastic educational experience for themselves and also for the organisations they're in. 
but you probably count them on the fingers of two hands, unfortunately. And, you know, there's no reason why this shouldn't go viral, but unfortunately the culture seems to be stopping us. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, okay. troubling here. As, as we've been saying, it's very inhibited by the discounted cash flow, markets will provide type of culture. You have to hope that things like the climate change uh, targets and so on, and the, the obligations that governments are starting to face to to, to actually deliver reductions will uh, will will provide the impetus to change things. But it's um it's troubling, yeah, uh, and 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 uh, and an important uh, experience that, you, that you're you're sharing with us, Will and Adrian. To uh, we all must heed as an industry to in, in order to to move on and start producing the buildings that we need for the uh for, for the century you know um thanks so much for, for coming on to the podcast um, yes, been brilliant and, yeah and uh, we'd, okay. you know, i'm sure that it won't be the last i would say i'll certainly be uh uh you know i'll be to have you back on as well at, at some stage and 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 uh and to feature more prominently in the magazine too but um look um uh, yeah thanks a lot and we'll leave it at that um so um we'll put all the stuff in the show notes that yeah. and share them uh all the links that you've the many links that you dropped into the chat while we were talking <laughs> they're referencing yeah. your chat as you go <laughs> we haven't ended up with a bibliography in the course of a conversation yeah. before do, do you mind if i ask uh, uh, sorry, sorry thank you so much for inviting us it's been ple- a pleasure we've never done this before and it kind of revives our double act of a few years back which we lo- we love so thank you very much I was, I was wondering if i could ask a, a sort of a post podcast question maybe jeff can include it afterwards because he, he's got some some of the, the team can do magic with all these these words and but one of the things that dan and i argue a lot about is the internet of things and now one of the things that we saw is that you referenced uh, in a 1989 white paper something akin to what the future was coming, which was the internet. And you've seen over the last 40 years, the evolution of sensors and everything to now it's become ubiquitous. But I want to ask you in the context of the the word or the the term internet of things, which has now become a mainstream term, do you think there is a place for that? Because you did mention about how, and we completely agree with you, it's all about the storytelling, it's about the case study, not so much about the big data, but is there a place for the internet of things in the management of buildings, especially for everyday people who actually live in them? Uh I'll start with this and then it'll probably take us half an hour to answer it. <laughs> We've got time if you want. Firstly, the paper that comes to mind is one that I did called The Logistical City, which was in written in the, the mid-1990s. And that then um, did a really crude graph that showed the. Co- it was all about the constraints that we operate under in the modern world. And what the graph in that showed that the constraints created by communication were screaming down, um, you know, with the internet and with the speed of processing and so on. But there were a whole set of other constraints that were increasing, like the constraints of uh, pollution and congestion, the environmental constraints and planning constraints caused by um, over-urbanisation, population growth and so on. And it became clear by looking at that graph that these constraints, these constraint lines were converging in the 20th century, coming closer together. And at a point at the beginning of the 20, um, 21st century, the communication constraint was was shooting up. You know, it was up getting, we could then do things like we're doing now very, very easily. And the other constraints like 
pollution and carbon and so on, we're becoming increasingly onerous. So in other words, the things that were underpinning building, settlement, transport and so on were radically changing. Now, the, the response has been to that, has got a lag of about 20 or 30 years in it, because now we've just reached the point where we're beginning to understand the implications of it in terms of um, work, in terms of settlements, in terms of where you live, in terms of sustainability, and so on. Now, the Internet of Things, um, I, I, I live about five miles from Filingdale's early warning station in North Yorkshire. And the British government, in its wisdom, has decided that we should all have smart meters, except that when you come near Filingdale's early warning station, none of the smart meters work. So none of us, none of us can have them because the smart meters interfere with the early warning system. Now, we've also got GCHQ as well. And we've also got a suspiciously large number of foreign ex-foreign office people living around here, in other words, spies. Now, um, so if you mix that little lot together, you know, the Internet of Things is both a benefit and a threat. And it's just one of those technological developments that happens, a bit like Routemaster buses. I mean, technologies have their niches where they work particularly well and where they don't work particularly well, like doorbells which have got uh, cameras in them and uh, you know those work brilliantly in certain situations and very badly in others and also apple air tags for example a fantastic device for rita being able to find her keys but not so brilliant if somebody sticks an air tag in her bag and starts following around uh, london you know, it's it, a technological question. You need to understand the niches that technologies work best in, like the Route Master bus in London. Brilliant. Worked brilliantly in, in London, didn't work anywhere else, and so on. Yeah, thank you very much. If I come in, um, when I was designing mixed-mode buildings, Rachel, in the 1970s, it was first in response to the three-day week in 1974, and a client said, we want a building where we don't want to send people home if the power goes off. So that led one to a building with a good passive zone, you know, <laughs> and um, optional things. Now, there's big fragility in the Internet of Things. Um, the IT systems have rapidly overtaken the aeroplanes as the highest carbon footprint of stuff in the world. I, th I think this thing, you know, exponential anything is really bad news for the planet. So I think we need to be very careful about the footprint of that stuff. And I like trying out Internet of Things stuff. And last month, I changed from half fibre to full fibre broadband. And it took me a whole day to get my Internet of Things things reprogrammed just for a change in Wi-Fi. And as always, the technology runs ahead of the usability. And so they can do really powerful things, but also that then no substitute for a pair of eyes in monitoring buildings as well. So it's great, great to have the data, but unless you can relate that to what you see and what people say, you think you know more than you actually do. Thank you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that sounds like a great t-shirt slogan as well, Bill, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to finish with one thing. I call value engineering vandal engineering.
<laughs> yeah, that sounds fair. <laughs> Value is one of those words that's been horribly debased over the years. Uh, I'm reminded of the aphorism, the price, someone knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. Yeah, the old Oscar Wilde line, yeah. Um, I think uh, uh, Nick Grant, if you know him, the Passive House, uh, uh, I guess you'd call him a guru. He has an interesting sense of value engineering kind of uh, piece. And he talks about the likes of, for instance, the Passive Slab Foundation, like an insulated slab foundation system where you have a, an, EP, a, a, an insulation hub, basically, uh, a concrete slab poured inside it. And that's it. You polish the, you polish it, and that's it. It's, it's simple. It's robust. It's energy efficient. There is an embodied carbon issue, admittedly, uh, but other than that, you know, it, it's an example of, of where you can actually simplify things. Um, and that's the point. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, uh, um, Adrian and Bill, this was is about getting away from complexity and towards. Some, there is a, a role for proper value engineering. Maybe just need to call something else. Um, but no, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, I uh, we could go on, but uh, the job of editing this is going to be it's hard, hard to uh, because uh, Jeff doesn't limit, speak in you know? complete um, sentences, that's why the, the editing's hard because <laughs> so, you've got so, to take so. out all these repetition and he's pausing. But yeah, that's been really good. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I think we'd love to have you back at some point in the future because you've got you've got a lot of knowledge we can draw upon if you're up for chatting because i think yeah. it's uh, it's really interesting your perspective particularly for alex and i because everything you say just echoes things that we tell our clients with regard to i mean primarily websites or marketing systems building design is systems design effectively it's just a very complex system with primarily a waterfall mode of delivery so but- this podcast goes out as a recording does it because yeah. uh, presumably there's a series and um, I mean, do you have this kind of more busking style of Q and A like we've been doing, or are they more like presentations? No, it, it's like this, you know, more more or less. It's it's, it's pretty pretty free form. Um, but it's been, right. You know, let's let's amazing. let's draw it to a close then. Chat, yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do this again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, enjoyed thank it. You thank you, guys. Much.